When I was a small child, I used to go to pre-K on a bus, and I was dropped off at my grandparents' house right there on the corner of their lot. I would go bounding off the bus and bounding up the walkway to their porch and inside always for some milk and cookies. My grandmother always had a little TV tray set up of milk and cookies that I could enjoy some after-school treat and watch some TV with her. Sometimes we watched uh, uh, entertaining uh, game shows, you know that one that says big bucks, no whammies. Some people at 9 o'clock never heard that one. Let me see if you know that phrase, big bucks, no whammies. Literally two. This was a nationwide show in syndication. Or how about the Incredible Hulk with Lou Ferrigno? Remember how scary he was as in slow motion you could hear his yell and his face all squinched up and he was tearing off his clothes? Or, or maybe we just watched... Uh, Marty Stoffer's Wild America on PBS. You know that guy who would wear uh, a nice thick beard and have flannel shirt sleeves rolled up as he sat in front of a, an editing suite and he would talk like this, and the ram locks horn with his enemy and the circle of life continues. Mutual of Omaha, Marty Stoffer's Wild America. Whatever we were watching, my grandmother, uh, I always was interested in knowing what she took from it because she was blind. So I'd ask her, how do you know what's going on? And then she told me also that in addition to being able to follow the storyline with her ears, that she wasn't always blind, that she could see. And then she told me about this strange time that existed before I was born when there was no such thing as technicolor when you were watching TV or film. I tried to wrap my little four-year-old brain around the invention of technicolor and its arrival onto the scene. She tried to tell me about how this was a, a gestalt shift, a game changer in society, but I didn't get it. One night, I spent the night over there and I was sitting up with her watching a movie before I had to go to bed and it was that classic film that many of us watched when we were young with our grandmas and grandpas, or maybe your moms and dads, or maybe, I don't know, you still watch it. The movie is called The Wizard of Oz. Do you remember how it begins? In a small little Kansas town, everything's black and white. There's this little dog named Toto, one of those heel yapper kind of dogs. There's a mean lady on a bicycle, and... Tornado Alley, so tornado comes through. And then Dorothy's whisked away into some magical land, and instead of being in color, it's now in, in technicolor. Everything is colorful. There's a yellow brick road, there's ruby red slippers, there's pink, and there's blues, and there's all sorts of strange things. I heard it on good authority. There's a horse of a different color in the land of Oz. And I was trying to understand, given everything my grandmother taught me about the invention of technicolor, how the Wizard of Oz must have been made. And as a four-year-old, here's what I came up with. Are you ready for this? This will show you that I am, in fact, born with a certain genius. I thought the filmmakers set out to make a Wizard of Oz, and they had no such thing as Technicolor, so they made it the way you made all movies back then, in black and white. 
Somewhere in some laboratory down the road, probably in Burbank, who knows, somebody said, huzzah, we have created Technicolor. Get it to the next movie being made. And so they ran it really fast over to the studio and handed them Technicolor. I, I don't know how you hand a color, but they handed them Technicolor. And they said, let's put it on this new film we got going on with Judy Garland. And so they applied the Technicolor. And then all of a sudden, from black and white to color, we went. And then, as we all know, when she's awoken from her dream, she's no longer in the land of Oz. She's just back in Kansas at home. It is again in black and white. So my little four-year-old brain assumed, surmised, thought, maybe that's the part in the film when they just ran out of this newly invented Technicolor. And they just didn't get to finish the job the way they would like to have. You know, our brains are very limited, right? We don't have blank slates. There are categories that we have in our mind. There are constructs we use to view the world and to interpret the world. And you're not just passively interpreting the world. You are constructing meaning at all times. And we use the best tools that we have to make sense of the world around us. And that is true. Certainly, The Wizard of Oz wasn't made that way. Almost certainly, the colors were metaphorical. They were meant to unveil certain kinds of truths, to make revelation of a deeper story more meaningful. And let's not forget the actual revelation of that film. You remember in the tale, Dorothy and her newfound friends found their way into Oz, and they're going to go see the great Wizard of Oz, and they ring the doorbell, and there's a whole bunch of stuff happening. It happens to them. And then they walk into the court of the great Wizard of Oz, and there's a big, you know, velveteen curtain or something. I don't know. And then there's fireballs and smoke and a holographic image of the wizard's face. And it's very scary, very loud, very evocative. And you hear, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. As the little yappy-heeled dog is trying to get at the man who's hiding behind the curtain, you see, there's a greater thing to reveal. The wizard is no wizard. He's a hapless, Mr. Magoo sort of Midwestern professor. He's calling right now. He's a hapless Mr. Magoo sort of professor who uses all these circus sideshow tricks to convey an image, a symbol, a certain fear for the people to have for him. But in that part of the film, there is a revelation. And when the smoke that is being breathed out of these machines is, is gone, is filtered away, what is really real is made clear to Dorothy and her hapless friends. All of this was an illusion. What happens when the smoke clears? Often we can see better. But what of our text this morning on this Transfiguration Sunday? What happens on that mountainside when Jesus is up there with a few of his friends and they experience that which they can hardly put into words? They have a moment of transcendence and the glory of divinity shines upon them and they can scarcely put words to this whole endeavor and then there's smoke and what happens when the smoke clears 
Do they have a greater sense of revelation about who Jesus is in this moment? Well, when the smoke clears, I would suggest it's actually less clear about who Jesus is. You see, at the end, when the smoke clears, they just see Jesus again. They see the fellow that has been their teacher, their rabbi. Maybe this man who has gone fishing with them, told a few jokes by the fireside. Maybe they pulled a few practical jokes on each other as they were fishing. You know, like fellows like to do. It was in the smoke. It was in all of the that which we cannot describe with words alone, and all of that moment where true reality visited their door. Hmm. Christ, you see, turns the world always and ever upside down. It's in the smoke when Jesus speaks to angelic beings and Leaders from the people of God of old, when God's voice is made known, when the lightness of divinity shines in his face, a lot like Moses when he visits with divinity on another mountainside. It's there in all of that that the really real is made known. You and I, we have a hard time with the really real, don't we? You're not made to receive the really real. Biology suggests that your eyes and your brains have evolved to make certain judgments about the world around you, judgments about safety and danger. The reason why you see certain plants in certain colors is a certain evolutionary tool for your own benefit. Certain plants give off a color or an odor that tells you things like, this is bad, don't eat. It will hurt you. It will kill you. It's filled with bacteria. But biologists say it doesn't stop with human eyes and brains and ears, but that plants themselves have evolved with us, have grown with us, had made adaptions and changes with us to present themselves in certain colors and ways to communicate to us and other uh, feasting animals that, hey, we're healthy, eat us. These apples are fine for you, or don't eat this, this is poisonous. The suggestion of the biologists, and I think they're right here, is that you and I don't really see the fullness of the reality of the world as good a vision as you may have and as smart as you may be. You only see what's presented to you. Your brains can only take in that which your brains have self-selected to see in the world. Do you hear what I'm telling you? Minds should be blown right now. What I'm trying to suggest to you is not just spirituality and theology and Bible in telling you that you hardly notice the totality of reality all around you. I'm talking straight up freshman level science. Freshman level science says you don't hardly get a glimpse of the totality of a thing in front of you. There's always more than meets the eye. There's always more than meets your senses. It always exhausts your possibilities. The really real of all things is almost always out of your grasp. And so here is the thing of it all. 
We have to keep training ourselves to sense the world that way, to, to bring it to the fore. We always have to approach it with a humility that says, well, this is what I understand, but there's got to be more. This is my experience, but it doesn't exhaust the vocation of a thing, a plant, an animal, my world. I cannot possess total knowledge of the world. And guess what you can't also possess? The realest of all reals. The most truest of all truths. Divinity. God, who stands behind all creation, who gives creation being, who gives you and me brains and eyes and life and breathing and air in our lungs. And God, who says, taste and eat, enjoy, live in my world. It's that God in Jesus Christ, over and over and over again, the Gospels tell us. It's that God who's making himself known to us in Jesus Christ. And here on a mountain, see, see, the knowledge of it is so great, it is so beyond, it's too much, it's too much for you to lay claim of that only in a glimpse and some smoke on a mountain in a, in a brief minute do the disciples catch it because to catch it 100% of their day would be to make them mad because God is that which no greater can be thought or experienced. And that divinity it's made known to Jesus, has come to you and says, come in, friend. I want you to know me. Now, you can't possess it, but guess what? It can possess you. You can't, let me make it plainer. You can't possess God. You can't possess Jesus Christ, but Jesus can possess you. You can't lay hold of divinity and wrap it up. But Jesus can take you in his arms and wrap you up and show you the truths of divine love. Isn't that what the cross is? When Jesus wraps up the brokenness of the human world and says, let me show you what divine love looks like. You can know God again. That the sublime nature of divine glory can be also something that you participate in. The danger for any disciple is that we would get too sleepy. That our senses would be too dulled. Be wary for those who go in for a religion that seeks only to entertain, for you will become bored. You'll fall asleep outside in the garden. Be wary for someone whose religion is only about you and your own self-authentication, because if it is, you will become bored and you will miss it. Be wary. These disciples show us that when they get tired, they fall asleep and they miss the spark of divine grace just permeating the moment. And they're asleep. I was once getting into my car over here on the side of the church. And I saw a student from SCAD walking uh, along Peachtree Street at 5 o'clock with mid, midtown rush hour. And they had their earbuds in and they were looking at their phone down, completely outside of the world, was shut out to the inside of whatever they were consuming. 
And as the kid walked, I noticed that one of the cars from across the street crossed three lanes of traffic and ran into another car. And that car came up on the side of the road and it hit one of those uh, old-fashioned looking light poles. And that old-fashioned looking light pole fell over and crashed down right in front of the SCAD student. And the SCAD student almost died like three times in this endeavor. The SCAD student doesn't realize that to this day probably. He didn't even know that the light pole had fallen until he was walking and he couldn't walk any further. And he looked up and there he saw the pole. And he looked up and then he saw the wreck. And then he saw two people bleeding in their cars. And I could see the horror on their face. And I screamed, call 911. Call 911. So many of us live our lives haplessly like this. Dulled to the senses. Asleep. And we miss the fact that the glory of God is almost already shining always around you. And then there's these moments, these moments where the sublime nature of God breaks in. I use that word sublimity intentionally. For thinkers like Immanuel Kant, the sublime is basically an aesthetic concept about not just beauty, but, but magnitude. You ever seen the Grand Canyon? You ever try to look at the, 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 uh, uh, the horizon in the ocean? Have you ever tried to peer at the whole sky? These vistas are too large for your eyes to take in one panoramic view. Your nature is that you actually have to take them in in pieces. And your brain does this fantastic thing of piecing it all together. So you think that you saw it all together at once, but you never did. Your brain only saw this piece and that piece and that piece, and then it put it together. But they're too large to take in on their own. The sublimity of divine glory. Too much to take in. God's glory. It's made manifest here in Jesus Christ as a gift for his disciples to see. Oh, it's with Jesus when the cloud's there and when the cloud's not there. It's with Jesus on the cross and when he's eating a piece of fish. But there are these moments when our human and our addled minds get to taste it, to see it, and to sense it. You just have to be ready. I'm aware that many people might hear this and say, well, you know, I'm really not liking what you're saying. You're saying that Jesus is the image of God. You're saying that Jesus is the representation of the divine love undergirding the world. You're saying that, that Jesus is this great revelation of God's love here. Yeah, I am. I'm saying that Jesus has come uh, to become like us, that we may become like God. Yeah, I'm saying all those things, but, but maybe you're thinking, I don't like it because of what you think of when you think of Jesus. Our world is full of people who cringe because when they hear that, that Jesus means so much, they can't, they can't help get away from the thought of people who are flying American flags and holding up crosses and AK-47s at the same time promoting Christian nationalism, who are really, really worried about keeping some people out and keeping some people in and commingling images of violence and somehow morality such that it gets to be a confusing mess. It's the fastest growing religious sentiment in America, Christian nationalism. 
And it's been a heresy since the beginning, no matter what country we're in. Some people hear me and they, que- they cringe because they can think about church abuses. I just read of another church, a different denomination, not the Catholic Church and not any of these other ones we've been hearing about, about, about clergy abuse scandals. Where children have been hurt by people they're supposed to trust to show the divine love of God. And instead what they got was a twisted love. I, I can't even continue, because it's not love. A twisted predation. Church has hurt a lot of people. There's some people just feel like, you know, who I am, God doesn't appreciate me. God looks at me and sees nothing but wrong. Do you know who Fred Rogers called Jesus? This is Mr. Rogers. He called Jesus the great appreciator. How does it feel to know that God appreciates you? Loves you just the way you are? Loves you too much to keep you that way? Wants to make you better? But we have this real notion that God is a parental hangover God or a cosmic cop. You can find these listed in J.B. Phillips's Your God is Too Small, where we have these notions of God as being one who is disgusted with us. If these are your views of Jesus and the divine glory made manifest, let me encourage you to just squint a little harder. Wipe your eyes a little bit more. Because the construct that you've been given is messed up. Maybe you've got to tilt your head a little right or a little left. Maybe you've got to rub those eyes. Don't get tired. And be reminded that divine glory has revealed himself and a person who eats with us and becomes our friend. Who knows you deeper than you know yourself and still likes you. Who says, I'll take their place. It dies for you as a gift. Who says, they're one of my own, even when we're not representing him well. Remember that this is what God is. Remember that God is the one who says, I'm going to walk with you into the darkness. I'm going to walk with you into the grave, and I'm not going to let you be alone. I'm going to walk with you until you've lost it all, and I'm not going to let you be alone. Well, on Transfiguration Sunday, it's a great reminder to us all that the splendor and sublimity of divine grace and glory comes to us through Jesus Christ.